Hello, and welcome to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast, a resilience podcast where we talk about all the challenging things that we're working to overcome, like anxiety, obesity, health, and relationship issues. My name is Sarah. Emotional wellness is a very important topic for all of us right now. Not only have we been dealing with a pandemic for almost a year, but we're also trying to navigate our regular pre-COVID lives that also come with challenges and grief at times. People continue to still receive medical diagnoses that are challenging, to lose loved ones and experience other losses, all with the underlying pandemic present. That's why I'm excited to speak to this week's guest, Amanda Ferret. Amanda is the founder of Value Yourself Counseling and a speaker, counselor, and educator. She focuses on emotional wellness, grief, and self-care. She helps clients to gain new perspectives and tools while making them feel safe. I think you're really going to learn a lot about grief and loss and all of the things to do with emotional wellness, including self-care from this conversation. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Amanda Ferret. So welcome Amanda to the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to connect with you today. So why don't we start with you providing a little bit of your background and how you got into emotional wellness counseling? Sure. Well, my professional background um, had always been in social services, mental health, family services, and I started grad school in 2015. I was working on getting a master's of social work, and then life said, here, watch this, and Mm -hmm. I started to have a great deal of losses. and wasn't taking good care of myself, was just going right back to school after these losses would happen and just kind of kept plugging along. And then life imploded because it was too much to try to not only learn all the things I was needing to learn, but learn how to take care of everybody else but myself. Mm -hmm. And so um, things just kind of fell apart in January of 2018. And I said, enough's enough. I need a break. I need to take some time to take care of my emotional health and well-being, my mental health and well-being, and my physical health and well-being. They were all suffering. And so I took a break from school, or what I thought was just going to be a break, and it turned into a permanent break. I'm a grad school dropout and proud of it, Mm -hmm. because in that, I realized, even though I was learning all these great things about how to counsel and take care of others, there still wasn't a lot of room for really honoring our emotions Mm -hmm. and honoring true healing and grief and loss and the complicated beings that we are as humans Um, in the world of social work, right? There's systems and there's band-aids and there's all these things that we come up against in the world of social work when working for agencies, especially. And I was just like, no, I don't want to do any of this right now. I want to take care of myself. So after a little less than two years of healing and doing a lot of work on me and my emotional well-being, um, summer of 2019, I had a friend die by suicide, but he was also my best friend's brother-in-law. So I went home and was helping that family kind of cope and deal and get back on track and have space for their grief and their emotions. And I came home and realized, all right, 
I think I've come far enough in my healing journey. I'm ready to pay it forward. I'm ready to help others. What does that look like? What does that mean for me? And I realized I was really struggling with this world where emotions are good or bad. They're Mm -hmm. positive or negative, right? This kind of binary of emotions and um, that we as a culture just aren't good about honoring emotions and are really tough with grief, right? We don't want to talk about death, but death is something that we all are going to experience in one way or another in our lives and loss. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, those are things I'm really comfortable with. Like I'm comfortable with the really hard stuff Mm -hmm. and I'm good at being there for people in the really hard stuff. So how can I pay this forward? What can I do? Cause I didn't want to go back and finish my master's. I didn't want to be anybody else's employee. I wanted to be my own boss. Mm-hmm. And so I started as a coach and then I was like, nope, that's not good enough. Like <laughs> I want, I wanted a little bit more for myself. So I got a wellness counseling certification and I'm now focused on emotional wellness. So I'm a certified emotional wellness counselor. And then I learned of EFT tapping, emotional freedom techniques tapping, and knew immediately that was a tool that I needed not only for my own healing and growth, but to use with clients. So I'm also a certified EFT practitioner. And I just am really passionate about helping people, women in particular, learn how to become aware of their emotions and come from a place of responding instead of reacting. So you've got that kind of emotional mastery. And then you can do the deeper healing work as well. And I do some of that with my EFT tapping. I can go in and help people kind of rewire their subconscious and do healing around memories, old thought patterns, beliefs, um, trauma, those kinds of things. So that's a little bit about my background is I had my own big journey of emotional and mental health that needed healing and work and then realized, okay, I've got the experience both professional and lived personal experience. I've got the education and I'm passionate about helping others. So how can I put that all together? And then value yourself counseling was born. So that's kind of my story. No, that sounds amazing. And that's interesting because when I was in grad school, very similarly, I kind of hit like a, a bit of a brick wall, I would call it. And and that's the first time that I really had to recognize that I was dealing with anxiety and, and some mental health issues myself. So um, I think, yeah, it's just such a, a crazy time because there's so much pressure and there's so much going on and and you know you're be, you're an adult at that point too so you're dealing with other things as well so that's interesting um and the tapping sounds I've heard a little bit about that but yeah I'd love for you to tell us more and so kind of in that maybe what other types of tools and maybe you can explain tapping a bit more um are you using to guide your clients through their journey I am pretty intuitive in my approach because we are all so different. All of us have a different story. We all have different lived experiences. We all have different values and needs and goals. So I try to really meet my clients where they're at. And first of all, figure out if I'm a good fit for them and if they're a good fit for me, because I don't ever want to do any more harm or not be um, the right practitioner for someone. Mm -hmm. But because I do have that little bit of, you know, grad school experience, you know, I know a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy and all these other modalities. Um, So while I'm not a therapist and I can't diagnose and I can't bill insurance and do those things, there are some of those things that I am skilled and practiced in as far as helping like change behaviors or build skills. Um, 
But my primary tool is the EFT tapping. Um, I'm in the advanced practitioner training right now and learning even more amazing tools to work on inner childhood, inner warrior, past memories, the trauma piece even more, um, as well as like future visioning and kind of figuring out what you want for your future self. So EFT tapping is a beautiful tool that combines both Eastern practices and Western practices. So the Eastern part of it is that you're tapping on acupressure meridians on your hands, face, and body. And the Western part is that you're combining in talk therapy. So you're literally using kind of talking it out or asking your subconscious questions as you go through and tap on these various points. And what that does is the tapping literally calms your amygdala in your brain, which is where fight, flight, freeze all live. And it calms your sympathetic nervous system. So you're able to go into a rest and repose state which then allows your subconscious to come forward and say, these are the memories I need to work on. These are the thoughts that I've been believing that I'd like to get rid of. This is the trauma. These are the memories that I have. And you're able to also make clearer decisions, make more accurate decisions on what you really want because you're clearing out the cobwebs and the chatter and all of those things that often get in the way. And you're in a place of, like coming from your authentic self because you're not in fight or flight or you're not activated. You're in that rest repose where you can truly kind of dig in deeper to your subconscious. And it also allows for the rewiring and rebuilding of neuropathways. So you can heal from those traumas or those memories, or you can rewrite those thought patterns and beliefs and get to a healthier version of you and have a healthier and happier brain Oh, wow. That sounds so interesting. So during the pandemic, how has that worked? Like, can you do a piece of that virtually or is it kind of more of it has to be a physical practice? Nope. Zoom is my best friend on the days that it decides to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Technology, a blessing and a curse. I love that there is things like Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and all those things where we can mm -hmm. see people via a screen. Um, while it's not the same as being in person with someone, it still allows me to read facial expressions and kind of get their affect and practice through the computer because EFT tapping is kind of like Simon says. So the practitioner will tap with the client and kind of have them follow along and I'm giving them the language to oh. use as we go. So okay. Zoom is great because they can see what I'm doing. I can see how they're doing. So I'm able to work with anybody around the world so long as they have access to Zoom. Oh, okay. No, oh, that's amazing. All right. I was thinking that you had to physically do it, but um, no, very cool. So yeah, no, the, the person taps on themselves and I tap along on myself. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, it sounds like it can be very powerful then combining with, um, with the thought work as well. So I think during this time, you know, many people are thinking of grief as in losing a loved one. But then we've also seen during the pandemic, there's been a lot of different kinds of losses, you know, from small to big. And I'm just wondering if you can give us an idea of some of the kind of different things maybe during the pandemic that you've worked through and how you maybe approach those differently or the same and, and how that would work. Well, there are actually six types of losses and over a dozen types of grief. 
So that's the first wow. thing I like to share, <laughs> right? Because yeah, people yeah. don't realize that. And so um, I'll go through the types of losses real quick because there, there's only six of those. So there's material loss, which is the loss of a physical object or surroundings. So, you know, I know people are struggling right now to have finances and a lot of places have put, you know, protections in place, but there's still people losing homes or cars or items. Um, so those would be material losses. There's relationship losses where there is ends of opportunities to relate. So that could be a death or a loss of a friendship or a divorce, those kinds of things where that relationship is no longer continuing. Um, and those are really hard right now with COVID and the mm -hmm. pandemic because people aren't getting to be with people in those last moments right? in the same way. And funerals aren't happening in the same way. Rites of passage aren't happening in the same way. Mm -hmm. So that's a, it's become complicated, a very complicated type of grief around our relationships in this pandemic. Then there's the functional type of loss, which is any kind of bodily loss. So if you suddenly become disabled or you are diagnosed with a mental illness or have any kind of neuromuscular, et cetera, things go on with your body, that's a functional loss. Then there's role loss. So loss mm. of a specific social role or identity. So I'm now a fatherless daughter. So I lost that role of being a daughter with a dad. I still have my mom. Um, but you could, if a parent loses a child, those kinds of things anywhere, or if you lose a job, right, that's an mm -hmm. identity. That's a role that you've lost. Then there's intrapsychic, which is the loss of what might've been. So an image of yourself or plans that you might've had anything where you've kind of told yourself a story of what's okay. going to be. And then that something changes and that story is no more. There's no more of what could happen. And then there's systemic where that's a disturbance of a social system. So when entire countries are dealing with, you know, genocide or those kinds of things, and it's kind of a big systemic loss. So those are mm -hmm. the six types of loss. So, um, you know, most people are like, yeah, I'm familiar with like, obviously losing things, right, or losing people, but there are six different types. And then like I said, there's over a dozen types of grief. And right now, in this pandemic, there's so much that's uncertain that we're all kind of experiencing anticipatory grief on some level, especially those of us that have older family members or family members that are at higher risk or family members that work in, you know, essential positions that are being put at risk. There's a, there's a piece of anticipatory grief there. And that's when there's something that you, there, you know, there's that possibility of loss. And it happens when you've got somebody that's terminally ill or is older or has some sort of diagnosis where you know that the loss is inevitable but you kind of have to, that sit and wait period, that period of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And right now during the pandemic, I think all of us are experiencing some type of anticipatory grief because it's uncertain, right? We don't know what's going to happen, um, you know, and that anticipatory gr grief can be around jobs, financial security, relationships, all those other types of loss. There's that edge of anticip anticipatory grief. And because we're not able to have our rites and rituals like we normally would, you know, funerals are happening um, online. I experienced that for the first time in the last couple months. I lost a dear friend in December, and so her services were virtual. And it doesn't bring the same kind of closure. It doesn't bring the same emotions and feelings and mm -hmm you're kind of watching from this camera up in the funeral home and you can kind of see a bird's eye view of the few family members 
that are allowed there, but you can't tell who else is watching and there's no sense of community and shared loss. And that's very difficult. And mm -hmm. I think that we're going to come out of this pandemic and not that I love the fact that I'm got job security, right? I, I would, I'm the kind of person that I'd rather work myself out of a job. I want everybody to be emotionally well. I want everybody to be healed and, and thriving. And I think we're going to be coming back from this for a long time because there's so many ways that grief is coming up for so many people in different ways that everyone handles grief differently. And I have a feeling that this is going to be something that people are going to need to kind of unpack and work through for a long time. Yeah, that's a good point on kind of the funeral piece and the closure that, you know, that's something that somebody may not identify right away that has affected them. Do you know what I mean? And that mm -hmm. it may take a while before they kind of pick, pick that piece up. So yeah, that's interesting. And so are you kind of approaching once, once you can identify the grief and loss that someone's experiencing with say COVID, um, you still approach kind of the treatment in the same type of way through the, through tapping. Everybody's different. Everybody yeah. experiences grief differently, but yes, my approach would be like to kind of check in, figure out what are, you know, what people are needing the most um, with tapping. We kind of have our, our set protocol of questions that we kind of check in with people on that help us direct and guide our sessions and let us know kind of where we need to go. Um, so we can meet our clients where they're at. Um, but you know, I'm, I've noticed in the last couple months that clients will come to me, they, they've got what they think they need to work on and we'll start to dig in. We'll start to do the work and more often than not, pretty soon I'll see tears. And this is why tapping with a practitioner is great and being able to see your face. Like I have to watch for those affect changes because then I know to check in and pretty soon we'll be unpacking way more stuff than they thought they were even carrying. You know, people are carrying around cumulative grief because things have just kept piling on. This has been prolonged. We're looking at almost a year now where various parts of the U.S. here have been in shutdown um, so it's going to be prolonged grief for people. So we've got all these types of grief kind of stacking up on each other. So I feel like my work is going to need to shift some and I will, there'll be more layers to what I have to do as mm -hmm. a practitioner to truly help people heal. Um, but my approach kind of always, yes, the starting point is pretty much similar. Um, and then where it goes from there varies on what the people need and just how deep their um, needs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm here based in Canada. And it's the same thing. It's been about a year in terms of all of the the shutdowns and off and on of different pieces. So um, I recently wrote a novel about a boy with a pediatric disorder called pandas. And I've talked about that quite a bit on the podcast. And I know for parents with children that have an illness or disorder or something that kind of changes their life drastically, there's almost a grieving parent period that the parent feels um, kind of because they look at the child's life maybe a little bit differently, I think. Um, and the future doesn't look quite as they thought it might. And so I wonder, you touched a little bit maybe on this with, I think, the interpsychic, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this grief and loss, because I've heard that through so many parents that are dealing with, with with these kinds of issues and then what you might suggest for somebody who's working through that. 
Right. And I've seen it with parents. So I've done child and family community-based mental health services. And so I've had families that are having to wrap their heads around, you know, a child that's going to have a mental illness for the rest of their life. Or um, I've unfortunately worked with teens that have started using drugs or alcohol. And so the parents have had to um, learn how to kind of handle that. And so it's a combination of the intrapsychic, right? So the loss of what might've been roles change because maybe now parents realize that they're going to have to be a caregiver for longer than they thought. And that caregiver role shifts and changes. And then you've got the functional loss as well. Right. And then the relationship changes. So you've got almost four kinds of types of loss that come into play for these families that are dealing with these, these things. And I've had that myself. I now have the label of disabled and I've had to learn how to accept and honor that. And I've had to kind of teach my mom, you know, and my family, like what that means and my friends. And Mm -hmm. it's a tricky kind of loss because it isn't that kind of, you know, when people die, that's something we've all, you know, had some sort of experience in, whether it's from the movies or real life or whatever, Mm-hmm. But these changes in relationships and function and having to rewrite these stories of what might have been and changes in roles where sometimes we don't have support, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe we don't have any representation of what it looks like to now be a parent in those roles or a person living with that identity or that disability or that diagnosis. So for those folks, I, you know, education, right? The more you know, the more power you have representation matters. So find community, mm-hmm. find parent support groups, family support groups, whatever you can find. Um, and if you can't find them, try to create them, right? Like community mm-hmm. matters and getting that community support. Um, and then as far as like my approach with folks, it's going to be like an onion peeling back those layers and knowing that we might bounce back and forth and have to do a little more work and spend a little more time and care. And I'm going to have to approach it with a little more compassion um, because it is really complicated when you throw in three or four types of loss and then add the grief on top of that and add whatever's going on in their environment and whatever the behaviors that change, right? And it becomes messy. Mm -hmm. And the more messy and complicated it can be, the more I have to kind of take my time to peel back and kind of take one piece at a time because we're storytellers too, by nature as humans, we tell stories. We've told stories from the dawn of time. And when families have to rewrite their stories and they have to rewrite it for themselves, for that other family member, for the family as a entire unit, for how that family then functions in their neighborhood, their community, their greater family, Mm-hmm. That's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to learn how to cope with and manage. And so, you you know, it takes a longer kind of approach of just helping them figure out what those new roles are, how things are going to function, what those relationships look like, what new relationships do they need to bring in support? Um, what systems do they need for support? what is and isn't working and then start to rewrite those stories in a way that honors everybody's feelings and needs and new roles and relationships so that everybody can feel seen and valued and heard. 
I think that's the biggest piece. Yeah, no, I can totally identify with that. You know, I have a son that has pandas and so definitely we've kind of had some of those role shift pieces. And then you're, you're totally right about the community piece, because I know for me, I had no kind of model of what this looks like. Um, and it eventually then I did find kind of even some Facebook communities and it just made a huge difference. Yeah, Facebook is great. I mean, there's groups mm-hmm. out there for almost anything. And like I said, yeah. if you can't find one, create one. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like the movie Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. Sort yeah. of thing. Um, you know, now there's Clubhouse. I mean, there's just so many avenues now to find community. Because um, I know that's the biggest thing that's helped me in my accepting of you know, my new identity is disabled and dealing with, I have chronic illnesses and mental health as well. So when you can find representation and community and feel like you're not alone, right? Yeah, There's yeah. so many parts of this world that already make us feel so isolated and alone. And when you can have that connection and that community, it's a lot easier to cope and build resiliency and move forward. Mm-hmm. No, Absolutely. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and start to talk about self-care. So that's something we are hearing kind of everywhere. I mean, if you go on Instagram, kind of podcasts everywhere, it's self-care, self-care. And I actually myself even released a self-care calendar that had some 30, 10-minute ideas to work self-care into your day, just kind of bite-sized because I know a lot of um, moms in particular kind of look at this and it seems daunting. And So I am sort of starting to see this negativity towards self-care where some people are feeling like it's just another pressure, like, oh, now I'm supposed to do self-care too, right? It's another thing (laughs) to build into the day. And so I just, I know that you've got a lot of expertise in this area. And I thought like, what are your thoughts kind of on this, this perception? How can we change that um, kind of negative connotation that self-care is starting to unfortunately get? Um, and then any thoughts that you had about how to incorporate self-care into your life? Yeah. Um, I actually used to hate the word self-care. I despised them because I had a boss, a supervisor who made them toxic. Right. Um, because of course, working in the social services, mental health field, they want to make sure we're not burning out that we're taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But the key word is self. And when you have a boss that then tries to micromanage your self-care, right. it no longer becomes self-care. Mm-hmm. And so I started to absolutely loathe the word self-care, pushed back on them. And then when all my world all kind of imploded, I realized that self-care was the main component of my healing. And when I say self-care, I take a wellness wheel approach. So I look at all the different aspects of the wellness wheel. So there's um, seven different aspects, right? So we've got social wellness, occupational wellness, spiritual wellness, intellectual, physical, emotional, and environmental. And so it can be as simple as, let's start with environmental. Is my home welcoming? Do I feel comfortable in my own home? What if I painted a wall a brighter color or got some plants or opened my window shades and let the sun in, you know, because if somebody's struggling with depression or anxiety or not feeling good, we we might not open the blinds. Mm -hmm. 
but you can totally shift your day and give yourself some self-care if you open those blinds and let the sun in on a day, right? So it can be as simple as buying a, a cute throw pillow or just shifting your environment, maybe putting music on, mm-hmm. social, right? Social has been hard the last year because oh, yeah. of the pandemic that we're in, but schedule that phone call or drop somebody a text when you're thinking about them, get on Marco Polo, whatever it is, making sure you've got some sort of connection. And again, I'm not asking for people to take an hour out of their day. It can be when you, if you think on it, you know, I'm, I've got the horrible habit of taking the phone with me to the bathroom, but I make some great social connections and they're none the wiser, of, you know, mm-hmm. what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but I'm letting people know I'm thinking of them. Right. And, and now the world knows my dirty secrets. <laughs> so, you know, occupational are, the, you know, is your job serving you? And some of us, we, especially in our culture here in the U S we are so good about getting stuck in a job that does not serve us. And I'm not advocating that everybody go out and quit their jobs, but you know, make sure that some of it's fun or find something that you can, again, whether it's bringing a plant into your office or finding five minutes a day to blast your pump up song or do something where that feels well, you know, spiritual, what is your spirituality? What is your faith? How do you practice? Are you not practicing? Do you need to develop a practice? And can that be as simple as taking two minutes to meditate every other day, even if you can't make it every day, or even just making sure you're doing some good deep breathing. Or for me, I'm a little woo. I love, you know, my crystals and my Oracle cards and journaling and practicing mindfulness um, and doing those kinds of things that brings me, you know, peace and makes me feel spiritually aligned intellectually. You know, I think now more than ever, we need to protect our intellectual space. So maybe it's turning off your newsfeed blogging out of Facebook, taking Facebook off your phone or doing those kinds of things where you protect your intellectual space. Mm-hmm. Or it can be adding in like, I'm going to listen to these podcasts or I'm going to read these books, but don't ever make it pressured, right? That's mm-hmm. the one thing I'll say is give yourself some grace. You're not supposed to micromanage your self-care. You're not supposed to, you know, it's not a competition. It's not a thing you need to shame or guilt yourself on, but it is something you should put on your calendar. And then for physical self-care, obviously, for everybody that looks different, you know, I'm disabled, so I can't go run five miles a day, but I try to do at least my stretching and my breathing and do things that I, you know, can take care of my body, you know, mm-hmm. eat, eat good foods um, and enjoy the foods I do eat. And then emotional, that's, of course, my aspect of the wellness wheel that I love. That's where I operate from, both personally and professionally, most of the time. Mm -hmm. emotional wellness can be journaling. It can be when we feel an emotion come up, taking 30 seconds to acknowledge and label and say hello to that emotion. Hmm. I'm feeling anxious. All right. Anxiety. I feel you here. What are you here to tell me? Because honoring and naming and giving some awareness to that emotion when we feel it tells us what we need. Because all emotions are communicators, they're messengers, they have a job to do, they're here to tell us either a need has been met or a need is not being met, or something needs to change, something needs to be different. Um, And so if we take those 30 seconds to listen, we then know how to respond, we then are coming from a place of mastery and control versus reaction, and that's going to allow us some better navigation in our day 
And that's good self-care, right? Is when we can, the more we can be in the driver's seat, the more we can kind of say, these are the things I can control. These are the things I cannot control. It's what is mine to carry? What is mine to let go of? Um, you know, that that's good self-care. And it can even be finding ways to celebrate, right? The, the ways that the universe is, is for you, not against you, or things that you've mm-hmm. done, you know, everybody jokes these days about, you know, I get an award for adulting today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you paid your bills on time or you remembered a bill that you usually forget or mm-hmm. you picked up your dry cleaning or you, yes, that is good mm-hmm. self-care. Celebrate those moments. Those, that qualifies as self-care to me. When you are able to do the things you need to do to just get through the day, celebrate those because they are wins. And I totally count those as self-care. Yeah, I like that. No, adulting is hard for sure. Um, and I I like this wellness wheel approach. I think that's really systematic in terms of kind of being able to break down all of all of the aspects of our lives that we need to address. So do you have any other tools that you want to mention to the listeners as we kind of head into wrapping up? You know, find little tips or tricks that work for you. Mine are just, again, making friends with my emotions, letting letting them know I, I hear them, I see them, I honor them when they show up. And then if people ever need an interrupter for your nervous system, you can tap on the side of your fingers. So if you take like your pointer and middle finger of one hand and tap alongside the other hand along your nail beds on the side of your fingers, that will immediately interrupt your nervous system, calm the amygdala down. You don't even have to say anything. You can just start tapping on the side of your fingers. So that's a little tip I like to give people um, so if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling angry, if you're getting overwhelmed, if you need to just calm yourself down, just start tapping on the side of your fingers. And Amazing. Take yeah. Take a deep <laughs> breath. I will try that. I will definitely use that one. Okay, that's great. So I'm sure our listeners are going to want to find out more about you and your methods. So I'm wondering how can they find more about you, um, either online, on social media, all those places. Yeah. So I'm building my website. It's almost done. So that'll be valueyourselfcounseling.com. And then that's my handle everywhere is value yourself counseling. So I have both a Facebook biz page and an Instagram account. And then if people want to learn more about who I am and what I'm doing and your woman identifying, I do have a group for women only that are wanting a space where they can show up hundred percent themselves hundred percent of the time. And it's called badass women breaking barriers. And it's a group on Facebook. So those are the places you can find me. That sounds great. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think those have been some wonderful practical tips. And I really enjoyed learning a little bit about tapping and how how that works as well. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. I wrote a book and I am so excited to share it with all of you. Pendulum by Essie German is now available. The story follows a young boy named Ben as he changes from a silly, energetic, happy little guy to a boy that is anxious, obsessive, emotional, angry, and depressed. After visiting 20 doctors and getting seven misdiagnoses, his mental health declining even further, he's finally diagnosed with PANDAS, a neuroimmune disorder. PANDAS stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Streptococcal Infections. It's a little-known and understood disorder without a cure. 
At eight years old, Ben and his family move to a new city to start a new life. He gains confidence, navigates his first crush, and plays competitive sports. Ben encounters many challenges in a new school while also coping with his mental health issues and trying to understand and accept himself and his disorder. Ben shares how he handles all the trials of being a middle grader and having pandas and his unique outlook on both the disorder and his life. Pendulum is available at Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, and also through the Friesen Press Bookstore. It can be found in hardcover, paperback, and the ebook. I hope you will check it out soon. I am creating an email list community under the name Real Life Project Co., which is my company name. And with this email list, I'm going to be communicating all about what's going on with the podcast, how things are going in terms of my writing career, and any special events or offers that are coming up, including our current offer, which is a free self-care 30-day calendar that gives you tons of ideas for self-care, to challenge yourself to keep looking after yourself for a whole month straight. If you want to join my email community, please go to my Instagram page at Sarah Lady Gluten and click on the link in the bio, which goes to the Real Life Project Co. webpage. And there you'll have the opportunity to sign up to be part of this community. I've been sending emails just about every week, giving updates on how things are going and where the podcast is at. And I hope that you'll join this community and find connection with me there. Thank you for listening to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast. Please keep in mind this podcast is not intended to be medical or professional advice. If you are looking for that advice, please seek that out from a professional. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can visit my blog, www.theallergybeast.wordpress.com or follow me online at Sarah Lady Gluten on Instagram, S-A-R-A-L-A-D-Y-G-L-U-T-E-N, or the Facebook page, Sarah-Lady Gluten. If you do like the podcast, please consider subscribing so that you will get the podcast update every week and or reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again and have a great week.